Good morning. Luke chapter 13. You know it falls on the heels of Luke chapter 12, so it's in the context, and you see that from the first line in 13. Now on the same occasion. On the same occasion. So you can't just pick up the Bible and and point to some passage and say, hey, this is what God wants me to know today. What's the occasion? If you're reading the Bible, you study the Bible, you want to know what exactly is the occasion. Well, the occasion is Jesus speaking to a large crowd. He's made his way out of Galilee. He's on the way to Jerusalem where he will die, and he knows he's going to die there. He's told the disciples no one really understands what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. The crowds are large. We saw that back in chapter 11. could be in the thousands. It said myriads, which is the biggest word in Greek for, uh, for their number, and that was 10,000. So if it's myriads, it could be tens of thousands of people following him. So imagine that. Thousands upon thousands of people following Jesus. And he's, as he always does, seizing the day, teaching them about what he would have them know. Back in chapter 12, again, we pick up that context where he says uh, uh, in verse 13, someone in the crowd, they got kind of bored of Jesus' teaching. You know the type. It's the person who always has their hand in the back. They're not listening to what's being taught. They're just waiting for you to hush so they can ask their question. And so they interrupted Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we get about, you know, we understand you talking about the theology, the deep theology and the greatness of God and all, but hey, will you tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? Always those in the crowd. Jesus says, I'm not an arbitrator between you and your brother. In fact, he says, you need to guard against your greed. How many of you today need to guard against greed? You like money. I mean, what's not to like about money? You get more of what you want. You want more after that. Watch out for greed, Jesus says. That hits everyone. I don't know anyone that doesn't struggle with greed at some level. Be on your guard, chapter 12, verse 15, be on your guard against every form of greed. There it is. Write it down. Underline it. Be on your guard against every form of greed. Not just money, but power, pleasure, leisure, greedy for more, even attention. I always, uh, I, I, maybe I shouldn't, but I, I struggle with people that say, I love to teach, love to teach. Sometimes that's just people that love attention, standing up to teach. Frankly, I love to study. I love the overflow I feel. I can't wait to get rid of it to teach. But watch out if you're a teacher. Why do you love to teach? Or people say, I love to sing. Okay, does that, anyone can sing anywhere, right? Does that mean you have to be up on the stage at a church singing in front of a crowd? Because really, what you might like is attention. Because you can sing anywhere, right? You can teach anywhere. You can go teach to a brick wall. Sometimes it's the same as teaching to an audience. So what are you greedy for? Attention, money, leisure? Be on your guard against every form of greed. Then Jesus tells him in verse 22 of chapter 12, do not worry about your life. How many of us are not worried about our life? At some level. We go out to a restaurant, maybe you you pack heat on you because you're worried about crime. Maybe you take certain pills and do certain exercises because you're worried about your health. You're worried about your children. How many of us don't worry about our children, their lives, other people we love? If you're praying for people, you are, you could fall in prey of being worried about people. But Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life. It's not, it's not, it's very simple for God to say that because he's saying, I've got this 
Have you ever been doing something and someone's trying to take it from you? It's usually called a backseat driver. You know where you're going. You know the turns. But there's always somebody in the back to help you do what you already know how to do. You want to tell them, I got this. You get in the car and somebody says, put your seatbelt on. I was going to. You can take the trash out. I was going to. When do I miss the trash? I got this. That's what God is saying. You don't need to worry about it. I've got it. This is my responsibility. Your life, God is saying, is my responsibility. Don't, or, or be guard against every form of greed. Don't worry about your life. You don't need to pop pills. You don't need to constantly think about what tomorrow holds. Today has enough worries of its own, does it not? I mean, you're thinking, well, today's a pretty, pretty easy day. Good, enjoy it. If it's a pretty easy day and you think, but tomorrow has got a bunch on it, that's tomorrow. When is tomorrow? Tomorrow. Worry about it tomorrow. Today might have your, enough worries of its own or just relax. And then he says down in verse 32 of chapter 12, verse 31, seek his kingdom. Matthew says, but seek first his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Watch out for greed. God has this. I've got it. That's great teaching for thousands in the crowd. That's great teaching for one of us. And that's the context. But Jesus does tell them to be ready in chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Be ready. Be ready because I could come back at a moment's notice. And he gives a parable of a, of a master leaving. And he's saying, he does, you don't know when he's going to return, but his servants need to be ready for his return to open the door for him because he is the boss. And that's what servants do. You open the door, you prepare the food, you make sure the, ser- or the master is good. And God is saying, I'm leaving. And I'm coming back, except that he says, when I get back, I'm going to serve you if you're waiting for me. That's a great depiction of the coming of Christ. And I told you, it's not the second coming of Christ. It's the rapture of the church. The second coming of Christ is completely different than the rapture of the church. We know when the second coming is going to occur. We know there are certain events in the history of the world that must transpire. And when they begin to transpire, there's a seven-year period in which they must unfold. At the end of seven years, he returns. And those events have not begun to transpire. Namely, a peace treaty in Israel brokered by the man that we will call the man of lawlessness. The Antichrist, hopefully we won't call him anything. We won't be here. Because the rapture of the church will preempt that event. And so we are waiting for the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. You don't have to go look in the newspaper. as if Who reads the newspaper anymore anyway? You don't have to look in the news, on the internet. You don't have to see this event's happening. Oh, look at artificial intelligence is coming. It must be coming. Yes, it's always about to come. The coming of Christ. There are no events in history that are going to happen that are going to say, okay, that's happened. Now the rapture can happen. It can happen at any moment. So don't be a newspaper, Yahoo, Fox News uh, eschatologist, whereby you're looking at the news, finding events, and saying it's got to be right around the corner. It's always been around the corner. That's the way God wants us to live, as if it could come, He could come at any moment. And so He says, be ready. Some are going to be ready, and some are not. Those that are not ready are not His children. They're not His servants. Beginning in verse 49 of chapter 12, He says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. He's talking about his own baptism, his own baptism of death. I've got to kindle that fire. I'm going to start the whole thing by dying on the cross. And he said, and what that's going to do, it's just going to bring division. 
It's going to bring division in the world because some are going to be with me and some are going to be against me. It's going to be within your families. We see that. Difficult teaching. The teaching itself divides people. Would have divided people then. I told you last week it's going to offend some and no doubt it did. Because we see the divisions in our families. Some believe, some don't believe. But we think blood is thicker than water. You've got to. We're family. It's family. It's family. It's family. The family that you and I have are the people of God. It may or may not be people who are blood related to you. It may not be the people, ladies, you gave birth to. They're children God put in your womb and gave you the responsibility to to raise and to love. But if they're not in Christ, they are not part of your eternal family. And if they are against Christ, you are divided from them. You're with God or you're with them. Jesus said, that's what I came to do. I didn't come to bring peace and make the world love each other. Yes, he came to bring peace to those whom he loves. And we do live together in peace. But he came, his words, I tell you no, not peace, rather division in verse 51. He was also saying to the crowds in verse 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, and he says, you know how to predict the weather. You're all good at predicting the weather. With just a little bit of signs from the sky, you can tell what the weather's going to be like. He said, how can you predict and be so good at that and so lousy at seeing that I am the Messiah, Jesus says. How do you miss that? How do you people miss the fact, he's telling them, you know the scriptures, you know all the signs, I've fulfilled all those signs. How do you miss that? But you can predict the weather. Again, he calls them in verse 56, hypocrites. Verse 57, why do you judge... And why do you not even judge on your own initiative, judge what is right? While you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he might not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer. The officer throw you in prison. In other words, he's saying, while you have breath, make your peace with God today. With God. God is our enemy. He's your enemy if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. God is your enemy. He does not. That's not going to come out well, so I'm not going to say it that way. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was going to say he does not love you. But God does display his love for all. But if you die without Christ, you will see the wrath of God on you. Those of us who have received Christ as our Savior had God mete out his wrath on Jesus Christ. He won't take it out on us. He took it out on Jesus. Do you want that wrath? Because Jesus is saying, on your way, settle your accounts now. Because the judge of all mankind, when you die and face him, it's too late to say, oh, now I see there's a God. I was an atheist on earth, but now facing you at your holy throne, I can see that you're real. Um, I'm real sorry about what I did. Too late. Now you're standing before the judge, and that judge will throw you into the jail, and you will not get out until you have paid, verse 59, the last cent. Do I owe a monetary debt to God? No. If you did, you couldn't pay it. You owe a sin debt, and you can never pay for sin. You say, wait a minute, I only lived 35 years before I died. I only committed 35 years worth of sin. Why do I have to live for eternity being destroyed over the course of eternity for 35 years of sinning? Shouldn't I just be purged for 35 or 40 years? No. Because sin is so evil we just think it's no big deal do we god knows i'm not perfect 
We have minimized sin. It's the very thing that sent Jesus to the cross. It is so wicked. The smallest of sins is so wicked that that in itself causes us to deserve an eternal torment of hell. On this same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans. Now, if you're a Galilean, you live in Palestine or Israel, the nation of Israel. You don't live in the, in the south, which is Judea. You don't live just north of that, which is Samaria. You live north of that, which is Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, where Jesus was born. Actually, where Jesus lived. He was born down in Judea in Bethlehem. He lived in, in Nazareth of Galilee. These are Galileans. They are Israelis. And they tell Jesus, they're going to report to Jesus about this blood that Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, that is the the Roman governor of Judea. The Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, reigned as governor of Judea, also called the procurator. Um, He ruled in that region from A.D. 26 to 36. That was the time of his reign there. He loathed the Jews and they loathed him as much as he loathed them. Vice versa. They hated each other. He had many issues with the Jews and killed many of them whenever it suited him. On this particular occasion, we have no extra biblical uh, report. The Jerusalem Times of that day does not report this event. But it's an event whereby Pilate came upon these Galileans who had come to Jerusalem to worship because that's what Jewish pilgrims did. If you lived in the north, you had to worship in Jerusalem. That's the only place a Jew could worship, Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the temple was, and that's where the priests served. The only way a Jew could get right with God was to go to Jerusalem, offer a blood sacrifice to make atonement for their sin, and the priest would give them forgiveness based upon what God had allowed him to do. That's the only place a Jew can worship. Interesting today, because they have no temple, and they have no priesthood. How about that? So how must a Jew, how can a Jew find forgiveness? Not through that. God didn't have any reason for that, to keep that around. So he destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. The priesthood is gone. No one even knows who descends from the tribe of Levi, the priesthood tribe. So how do they find forgiveness? Well, they believe in their Lord and Savior, whom they reject. That's how everyone finds forgiveness. He is not only our king, he is also our priest from a a division of priests that's different from those from the tribe of Levi. We call that the, are you ready for this? Got to write this one down. The Melchizedekian priesthood. Now you're going, oh, great. I'm completely out of the loop. Melchizedekian. That's just a great word to memorize. You can shut down any conversation and say, well, I am a Melchizedekian priesthood believer. You'll either impress your friends or ruin the conversation altogether. In other words, Jesus doesn't come from the tribe of Levi where the priests came. And those are the ones that made atonement for, for, for between God and man. they right there in the middle. He came from a, a priesthood that predates Levi's priesthood. From a man named Melchizedek. A priesthood that is superior in every way to the tribe of Levi. Jesus descends from that Melchizedekian priesthood. He is from the tribe of the kings. He is our priest and our king. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. Well, these Galileans come down to worship because the temple is still there. And Jesus hasn't died or been resurrected at this point. They come down. All they're doing is worshiping. They went to church, if you will, that day. Pilate decides to fall upon them, slaughters them. 
while they're offering a blood sacrifice, their own blood is mixed in with the animal blood. Hence, they're telling Jesus, they're telling Jesus some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. So they're telling Jesus this. Why would they tell him this? Jesus, you're talking about people who are going to go into hell at the end of chapter 12, and they're not going to pay the last cent. What about the people that Pilate killed? Forget Pilate. That guy's in bad shape anyway. Later on, we know he's going to have Jesus crucified. What about those Galileans? They must have been really bad people, huh, Jesus? That's the question. Have you ever thought like that? You've seen someone die a horrific death? I remember when uh, uh, the movie Black Hawk Down is a, is a rendition of, of what happened in Mogadishu where, where the, the helicopter went down and, and our men were killed. And some of them, the bodies that they recovered, um, the, uh, the terrorists dragged their dead bodies all around town, put it on camera. And you're thinking, oh God, please don't let that man's wife or his children ever see that footage. Some would say, wow, that person, that U.S. Marine must have done some really bad things to die like that. You ever thought that? That person died a horrific, slow, torturous death. They must have really done something bad. You ever thought that? People do. Even though we're Christians, some people believe in karma. You reap what you sow. Well, we do reap what we sow, but karma is a completely different issue. It's Hinduism. It's complete and total Hinduism. And it's not just getting what you deserve, reaping what you sow. It's having a bad life here on earth and coming back as whatever. Some slime on your back door. Wow, that's, that person really did bad because they came back as a rodent. Or they came back as a, as a cow. You know, Hindus don't cut up cows and eat them because that might be grandpa. If it was a cow, it'd have to be grandma then, wouldn't it? So that's what they're giving Jesus. Look, what about those people that died so horrifically they were worshiping? They must have been really bad, huh, Jesus? And Jesus is in verse 2. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? That's why they presented the question. Jesus is essentially saying, you're posing this question to me because you think those people were really bad. And the fact that they suffered so horribly and died the way they did that must mean they're worse than the rest of the Galileans who didn't. So in other words, the Galileans who survived that day, they must have been better than the ones who died. Correct? We see people on the news. They're in a car wreck. Someone interviews them, and they say, well, God was looking out for me today. Well, what about the poor guy that died in the fire? Was God not looking out for him? What about me? Oh, I, God, I must have been good. I prayed before. That guy might have prayed too right before he died, and died in that horrible fire. That's the question here, a question that you and I still pose today to God. And Jesus says again, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent, that's what he's been talking about the entire time. In chapter 12, in the context, because it's on the same occasion. It's like people are saying, I got one for you, Lord. How about those people who, who died that way? They were really evil. Did they expect Jesus to say, yeah, 
Yeah, because, you know, the worse you act on earth, the worse you're going to die. He says the exact opposite. That is not the case. Do you suppose they suffered worse? I tell you the truth, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent, that's a, that's a great Sunday school word, isn't it? I don't think we use it any, anywhere else. All it means is to change your mind. A person who repents is the one who changes their mind. You are a, a Houston Texans fan and you say, I'm going to change my mind and see the light. I'm going to be a Dallas Cowboys fan whereby I can go to heaven after I die and live in hell every day until it happens. <laughs> you change your mind. I was once a, uh, uh, I loved steak and now I love vegetables. I changed my mind. I repented of steak. That's all repentance means. It doesn't even have to have a religious context. I have changed my mind. And Jesus is saying, unless you change your mind, you will all perish the same way as those people. Now, he's not saying it's, that Pilate's going to fall on you and slaughter you. Note that when you die, no matter how you die, when you die, the moment you die, you die. It's over right then. doesn't matter if your body's dragged behind a jeep and made fun of or chopped up. You're already dead. It doesn't matter. You're not suffering and going, wow, this is terrible. I died, I know, but this is really bad. You're dead. It looks terrible, and it's horrible for those of us who are alive to see someone do that to a, a human body, one made in the image of God, but you're dead. You're not suffering anymore, at least not on the earth. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to likewise perish. He's looking at a crowd that needs to repent, that needs to turn away. You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, unless you believe. I came home last week, and Cheryl asked me, she said, why do you always just tell people they have to believe and that they don't have to repent? <laughs> and it's a good question. Because I do. I normally just say, believe. Believe and you shall be saved. Because Jesus says that. But Jesus also says, repent. The, he uses them interchangeably. It's two sides of the same coin. You see, folks, if you don't believe in Jesus, and then you believe, what have you repented of? You've repented of your unbelief. You didn't believe this way. Oh, I believe this way. You repented of unbelief. And all the lifestyle that unbelief has, you've turned away from. I repent of my unbelief. So Jesus could just as easily have said, unless you believe. But sometimes you have to use the word repent to really get a point across. Repent means Actually, it's a more powerful word in a different context. These people have a false view of God, and they bring this thing to Jesus. Hey, these people suffered terribly. And Jesus is saying, look, they suffered terribly, but they all died. And unless you repent, you're going to suffer and die the exact same way. And again, I, when I say exact same way, I don't mean that they're going to die just like Pilate killed those people. You're going to die too. Verse 4, whereas they informed Jesus of something that a man did to people, Jesus informs them, or at least asks them a question in verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So this is a current event. Again, it's another one that's not recorded in history. We can't read Josephus. He doesn't tell us about this. It's not written in the Jerusalem times of the day. 
But apparently there was a tower right there at the Tower of Siloam, the spring of Siloam. Large object fell, like maybe a crane would fall today. And it fell on 18 people and they died. And people were going back going, man, that's a terrible way to die. They must have done something really bad. So whereas the first one, the first indication, the first example is of a person slaughtering people, innocent people. This one, it's just a natural disaster. Do both happen? You go to uh, the the volcano that erupted, Mount Vesuvius, killed thousands of people. There's a a story in... uh, Happened in, Cheryl and I were watching it uh, while watching some history of, uh, of England. Uh, a recent story where um, this mud rush came down, I believe it was in Wales. School children are all doing their school lessons, learning in school. And without any warning, this mudslide came down, covered them all, killed them all. Every one of them, gone. I read, uh, each day I read a uh, little church history thing, what happened on this day. In particular, one I was reading on June 29th speaks of a man. I'll try to, this can be, uh, this is kind of tough to listen to, but I want, I want you to hear it. This is a missionary. This is a man who, who gave his life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in Scotland in the 1600s. You want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the 1600s in Scotland? You took your life in your own hand. You didn't go out and say, my first day of being a pastor, this is going to be a great day. Let's talk about my retirement and my salary. No, you talked about whether you were going to die that day. This particular man, his name is David Haxton, came to Christ, started preaching. The moment he started preaching, people were out to get him. They were chasing him. Stood trial. He says in his trial, he said, now I stand here before you as a prisoner of Jesus Christ for adhering to his cause and interest which has been sealed with the blood of many worthies who have suffered in these lands. I do own all the testimonies given by them and desire to put in my might, that little penny, his, his gift, I do desire to put in my might, my gift among theirs. And I'm not only willing to seal it with my blood, but also to seal it with the shape, the sharpest tortures you can give. And we think a guy like that, oh, God's going to let this person live a long life preaching the gospel. God needs such a one, especially in Scotland in the 1600s. They took him at his word. He was condemned June 29th, 1662. The next day, taken to an execution site. His right hand was stretched out and hacked off. The executioner took so long to hack off the right hand that Haxton, Haxton, the man's name, asked him if the left hand could be severed at the joint. Imagine that. While they're torturing him, killing him, he said, hey, can you take off this hand at the joint instead of hacking it off up, up up my arm, which took you so many times to, to hack off. I'd like to know what that conversation was like. Hey, hey, that took a while over here. Can you do this one right here? The executioner, it says, uh, and this was done, the executioner obliged. Haxton was then pulled off the top of the gallows, pulled to the top of the gallows, allowed to choke a while, then dropped with his whole weight. This was repeated twice. Then the hangman with a sharp knife sliced open his chest, pulled out his heart, still beating, it fell on the scaffold. <clears throat> it fell on the scaffold and the hangman picked it up. 
on the point of his knife, imagine him just stuck his knife and held up the man's heart and he said, here is a traitor. They took his body, quartered it, burned it, stuck his head on a stake. And you think, man, he must have done something really bad. Isn't it the opposite? No, man, he must have done something really awesome. What? Start a church? Build it to a megachurch status? Invent the wheel? He preached Jesus in the face of death, and he said, do your worst, and they did. That's what he did. That is greatness, and it beget a death. But the moment he was dead, he was dead. Didn't matter what they did to his body after that. And while these people were asking Jesus, what about these people? And Jesus asked them, oh yeah, what about the 18? The tower fell on them and killed them. Do you think there were worse culprits than the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you the truth, Jesus says, no. And he repeats himself, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you turn away from your sin, unless you receive God's forgiveness through faith, and by the way, salvation was granted before Jesus died on the cross by faith, always. You and I receive salvation by receiving Jesus and believing in Jesus after the fact and everyone who received salvation believed and received salvation before the fact Genesis chapter 15 verse 5 and 6 God told Abraham when he had no children and a barren wife look up Abraham look at the stars count them if you can that's how numerous your offspring will be me and my barren wife yep what did Abraham do? He said, okay, I believe you. And Genesis 15, 6 says, and God credited to him as righteousness because he believed God. Do you believe God? Or is your Bible closed, cut up, maybe pages torn out because you didn't like something he said? You didn't believe that? I don't like that doctrine. I don't believe that. I don't like that. But I like the rest. You either believe God or you don't. Believing in God, that's what the word believe means. It means faith. So Jesus is saying, folks, repent. Unless you do, unless you turn from your unbelief, you will all likewise perish. But he's not talking about physical death. Everybody's going to die physically. They knew that. Jesus is telling them it's all going to happen over the course of eternity if you don't change your mind about Jesus. How many people in this room today need to change their mind about Jesus? Maybe you were taught a mamby-pamby Jesus in a previous church. Oh, he loves everybody. He's just in love. I love that, that when people say, actually, I don't love it. I loathe it when people say, God is just so in love with you. No, he's not. What about you can anyone be in love with? Seriously. What is he saying? How dare Lance say that? I'm a lovable person. No, you're not. God sees everything you think. He knows everything you've done. You are not lovable, and yet the God of all creation has chosen to love you anyway. Even those who are not saved, 
His mercy proves it. He's not in love with you. He's better than that. He has this volitional love choosing to love you in spite of how wicked you and I are. What a God. Jesus is telling them about this God. And if you don't turn from your sin, you will perish over the course of eternity. That's the context going back to chapter 12, verse 59. I tell you, you will not get out of that jail until you have paid the last cent. And so he illustrates it with a parable in the beginning of verse 6. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for, fig on, for fruit on it and did not find any. Well, that's why you plant a fig tree. If you plant any kind of a fruit tree, you plant it so that you can get fruit off of it. If you don't get fruit off of your tree, what's the point of having the tree? And trees that are not producing fruit are actually taking nutrients from the ground and depriving other plants and perhaps other trees of their much-needed nutrients. So the best way to, to help those other trees which are producing is to cut down the one that isn't. Throughout the Old Testament, four or five passages, Israel itself is, is equated to a fig tree. He's talking about a man has got a fig tree, planted in his vineyard. Vineyards are very well watered. You have to water a vineyard well to, to grow the grapes. This fig tree is in this vineyard, so it's well watered. And he came looking for fruit on it. He did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Get rid of it. Why does it even use up the ground? And the vineyard keeper, verse 8, and he said, he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it, put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Folks, this is talking about people. God's not interested in trees. So I want you to imagine, maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's someone you've been praying for. Maybe it's you. We like to imagine other people. But sometimes it's just us. So let's imagine this fig tree is a person that God has given life to. A good job, a family, reliable transportation, good health, an education, this person has gone off and they're living their lives paying no attention whatsoever to God. That might be you, might be someone you know. Don't need God, got everything. Got a boat and a second house. I'm good. Don't want to bother you, Lord. I'm good, thank you. I'm a self-made man. All we know is given by God. God's the planter of the tree. Put it in great soil. So that's the fig tree. It's, doing, it's got everything it needs to flourish and God comes looking for fruit. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's someone you know. He doesn't find any. Don't attend church. Using foul language when they could be exalting God. They don't spend their money on anything spiritual, but only on themselves and their own pleasures. God comes looking. Finds none. Because God is the, the, uh, uh, the man with fig tree here. And he says, you know what? Get rid of him. Let's be done with that. That person needs to go. The vineyard keeper here is probably Jesus, and it might be one of us. Because the vineyard keeper says, the vineyard keeper, um, verse 8, he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir. Maybe Jesus saying, Father, let Lance alone a little while longer. I'll till the soil around him. 
I'll dig around the area, the perimeter of where his, his, uh, his roots are and, and throw some fertilizer on. And we'll see what happens. You know what that means in our lives? If you're not producing fruit, digging around. How would you like to be a root on a tree? You ever done that around a tree? Stick that spade in there. Boom, up, cut that root. Ooh, I shouldn't have cut that one. I hope it lives after I cut that one. That looked like a main artery to the tree. Throw a bunch of smelly manure around it because that helps trees grow. Well, what about in your life? What would it take? Removal of your health. Removal of your wealth. Someone you love. God just yanks that proverbial carpet out from underneath you. You don't think you need me? Let me show you otherwise. What's that feeling I feel in my lungs? Kind of hurts. Go to the doctor, lung cancer. Maybe spread to your brain. What do you do now? What does your money matter now? What does your vacation home mean now? You're going to live at MD Anderson. A little apartment next to it so you can go back for chemo every day or whatever. Feel miserable. What does all that stuff prior to that mean now? What if in the midst of that, God takes away someone you love? Lord, really? You want to read a really good account of whom this happened to? It's Job. In fact, let's turn over to Job, if you would. You know where Job is. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Job, you're going to have to go to the left. You're going to pass all the prophets. You're going to get to Proverbs, and you're going to see Proverbs and Psalms. Keep moving to the left, and then you're going to come to Job. Just left, just prior to the book of Psalms. 42 chapters in Job. I'm going to chapter 4. I could go to many different ones, but I'm just going to go to 4. Kind of fits in with what... Uh, These people were giving Jesus and what he gave them. Job, we know from the opening statement of Job, was was one of God's top dogs on the earth, as it were. If if Job is batting in in, in a championship baseball team, he's the third batter. He's the best hitter on the team. He's number three man. Job, greatest man on the planet. You'd expect everything great's going to happen to Job, and it has up to this point, but God decided to take it away to prove a point. And his so-called friends come to him. One of them says, it's Eliphaz. Don't name your kid that. Chapter 4, verse 7. Eliphaz says this, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. What he's telling Job is, Job, you ain't so good. The only reason you're suffering is because you're a wicked man. And you did something really bad. Own it. But we know from Job's story, he didn't. Job is an upright and righteous man. He's not perfect, but he's upright and righteous. The fruit of Job's life apparently made Eliphaz and his other two friends jealous And so they're accusing Jesus, or Job, I should say, of having committed some heinous crime, living in sin. That's why you're suffering, Job. The fruit of your unrighteousness has finally come out. Well, God is trying to prevent that from happening. And by the way, Job, the entire book of Job, dispels that ridiculous theory. That's what Jesus is saying. But when people look on, they think that. 
And so when you are looking at a person who has everything and has no spiritual fruit, you're going, I know he says he's a Christian, but he doesn't act like it. He doesn't talk like it. What do we say about a duck? Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. What is it? If it looks like a Christian, talks like a Christian, quacks like a Christian. And there's a few Christians out there that are quacks. Must be a Christian. This guy's got no fruit. But Jesus in his mercy, Father, let's bring down some trials on this person. Maybe some of you are in the midst of that right now. You're wondering, where's God? You know that this is the answer for that age-old question of why is there evil in the world if God is so good? The evil, if you're the tree, is not going to be real fun. You've got to be tilled. You've got to be soiled. You've got to be cared for. Bad things happen to people. We call them evil. Why would God do that? Ask yourself, why is God doing this to me? But don't say it in such a way as you're shaking your fist at God. It's, Lord, I can see this is happening to me. I really would like to know why. Not from an unfair standpoint, but I would just like to get to the bottom of what I need to do to grow, to work through this trial and be the man or woman you want me to be. When's the last time you prayed that? As opposed to getting on the church prayer list, pray for this person that this goes away, pray for that person that this goes away, pray for me that I get this. Keep those prayer requests to yourself. I don't pray that for any of you. I don't. You can give me that prayer request all you want. I'm praying for God's will to be done in your life. Lord, if this person doesn't need to get well, keep them sick, make them get worse. I don't tell you that when I'm at your hospital side, but because some people need to get worse before they can get better, before they can really grasp. You need to come to your rock bottom sometimes. That's God's mercy. We call it evil and we shake our fist at heaven. God is saying, look, I love you. I'm giving you this opportunity to grasp what I'm doing and grow. Life is not a big bowl of Skittles. It's not supposed to be. Sometimes it's got broccoli in it. You got to force that stuff down. Sometimes it's got no food in it. You got to get through for the better good. In time, God will give you some cheese to dip the broccoli in. But that's what's going on. That's why there's evil in the world. It's God's mercy helping us, moving us, getting us to where he wants us to be. It's waiting for you to say, Uncle, Lord, Uncle, I give. I'm giving that up. I'm repenting of how I've been living my life of what I've not been doing. I'm repenting of keeping all my money and I'm going to give you a portion. I'm repenting of keeping all that I have for me and I'm going to help some other people with it. I'm repenting of always thinking of me and I'm going to think of you. I'm repenting of watching filth. and I'm going to turn that off. I'm going to read your word. I'm repenting of always talking to everybody else and never talking to you. God's going to get what he wants. And if he doesn't, he will uproot the tree. 
He will uproot the tree. You will die. That's why Jesus said back in chapter 12, fix it now. Because when the axe is at the the tree, when it's out there at the, the base of the tree, it's over. Isn't that what John the Baptist said when he got here? The axe is at the base of the tree. Repent. That was John's message. Jesus comes along in, in Matthew 4, 17. His first message is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Some people say repent should just be given to unbelievers. And it is in that context. But when you get to the book of Revelation, he speaks to seven churches. A church is a gathering of believers. Over and over, it's repent. Repent. Turn from your ways. You say you're Christians, but you act like atheists. Let it alone, sir, for this year or two until I dig around it, put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If it does not, cut it down. How much time is God giving you? How much time do you need to get your act together? How many of you keep saying, I know I need to read the Bible. I know I need to start giving to the church. When better than today? Do you know, and I'm not a big guy, I'm not, I'm not that person to say, you've got to give your money and give your 10% and give that. I'm, I'm not, we're not here for that. It, we're not a, a church that's about money. It's not about getting me a raise or anything like that. It's for you. We give for our own benefit, for the glory of God, and we're the ones that get the blessing. And when you do, you scratch out that check, you're going, ah, this hurts. Good! That's called worship. If it hurts... Honk your horn if you love Jesus. Who can't do that? In our day and age, honk your horn if you want the next guy guy next to you to shoot you. So don't honk your horn if you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, give of yourself, of your money. Write out that check. Give of your time. Work in the nursery. I don't like kids. They probably don't like you either. Y'all go make up. Make up in the nursery. Serve. Go out there and greet people. Get a new name. Pray for people. Tell them you prayed for them. When you ask how they're doing, don't wait for them to finish so you can tell them how you're doing. Everybody does that. People say, hey, how was your trip to Israel? How are you doing? Oh, this, that. Mine went to Israel too three years ago, and boom, they're off. So you didn't really want to know about my trip. You just want to talk about your trip. You didn't really know about how I was doing. You just want to tell me how you're doing. Everybody needs to shut up and start listening. Every conversation you're given, you get that opportunity, don't you? So if you're thinking about what you want to say while the person's talking, you ain't listening. I had to get that in. Get edge it in there. Folks, God is doing something with the trials in your life. There's a reason for it. Let me give you, I copied this from a, a commentary I saw. It was just too good not to. And, and he, this particular commentator says, here's why bad things happen to good, good people. We, we think we're good people. But really, if we get rid of that ridiculous notion, we realize there are no good people. So why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. (laughs) Bad things happen to sinful people. We're all sinful. Anyway, this man uses the Bible, straight from the Bible, and he says, number one, why does it happen? Number one is to cause us to lean upon God and not ourselves. That's why we pray. We're at the end of our rope. I can't do anything more, Lord. I can't do this. That's why we pray, Lord, will you? Will you help me or will you do this? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, Our affliction in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. 
We have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That happened to the apostle Paul. God brought him down to nothing so that Paul could just trust God. Number two, why does God do bad things or give us difficult things? To expose what and who we truly love. Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is two apostles that had been beaten for preaching Christ. They got thrown in jail, and before they let them go, they beat them. And they left going, last time I served Christ... No, no. They left with blood coming off their backs, having been beaten, going, this is awesome. We got to serve Christ and we get to suffer for him as a result. Not us, we get on the prayer request chain. Help, ask God to take this away. So to expose what and who we truly love. Number three, we receive these trials to test the genuineness of our faith. What's in our heart, the contents of our heart. Psalm 44, 21 says, God knows the secrets of the heart. Doesn't that scare you to death? Acts 15, 8, and God who knows the heart. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, in this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, if that's what's happening in the trials, bring them on. Number four, to prepare us for greater usefulness. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's the most paradoxical statement in all of Scripture. Consider it joy when I face various trials. I don't have the right to gripe when I'm facing a trial. You can. Or you could turn it around, repent, and say, Lord, thank you. I don't like it, but thank you. I learned this while having kidney stones. And I mean it. I did. I learned it. I, when you're having a kidney stone, you know it's not going to go away anytime soon. How many of you feel my pain? Kidney stone, sure here. Some of you, you women who have had babies, you don't know nothing. You give birth to a 15-pound to a giant, that doesn't compare to three millimeters of jagged stone. <laughs> Laying on the ground going, Lord, because when I start to feel it, it could be up to 12 hours until it, it exits. And I know it. I'm thinking, I got 12 hours. Lord, why me? What's the deal? What did I do? You drank Coca-Cola. You had too much tea. Your diet stinks, and I'm showing you who's boss. Okay, I love you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to suffer. Now, I'm not suffering as a Christian or doing something as a Christian. None of you gave me a kidney stone, but it's time to suffer. It's time to be wallowing around and flipping around like a fish out of water on my bathroom floor. And my wife's going, what is wrong? Nothing. Let me flip, flop, and scream for mercy. Thank you, Lord. You have given me trials. Pray. Thank you, Lord. James, chapter 1. What an incredible passage. It's to teach us to consider it joy when we encounter trials. Now, that's just a, a that, that has nothing to do with being a Christian, but when you face trials being a Christian, thank you, Lord. If you ever face the opportunity of dying, what greater privilege is there to die for your faith? Don't deny it. 
Do your worst. To remind us of our eternal hope. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Paul says we exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance brings proven character. And proven character brings hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We are given trials to teach us to obey. Psalm 119.67. David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. To reveal God's benevolence, His love, through trials. 2 Corinthians 1, 4-5. God who comforts us in our affliction, so that we be able to comfort those who are also in affliction. You've been through it. You can tell somebody, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've been through difficult health problems. I've been through a divorce. I've been through whatever. God gave me that trial to help you. And I've seen people. I've counseled people one year and they're at the depths of despair. And God brings them out of those ashes. And the next thing you know, they're in a counseling room helping someone in the same place. And now they know why. I look at the trials that I face as a young person uh, and, and, and where God led me as a pastor and the trials I faced as a church planter, the trials I faced in my office, the, tro- the problems that come in, the things I've heard, the things I myself have been through, God's using them all, using them all. I don't ever have to go back and say, Lord, what's the deal? Why didn't you just leave me alone? The whole time is God saying, Lance, I made you a pastor of a church. You've got to go through difficult times. You're helping people going through difficult times. You're my representative, Lance. Tell them about me. Tell them through your own experience how I sustained you. Tell them how I blessed you. Give them hope, Lance. That's why you're here. When you stop doing it, I will remove you. And I might remove you in the midst of it. To equip us to comfort others, I would say. And finally, to show us that God has a plan. You ever look back on your trials and in the midst of your trial, you're going, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. I don't know what you're doing. I don't like it. But 10 years later, you look back on it and you say, I know what you were up to, Lord. I get it. Anyone been there? I can see now, Lord, why I had to suffer that way. I do. I look back on the trials I've been through and and the trials I've not had to endure, but the trials I've been through, I, I get it, Lord. I needed that. I needed the humility. I needed the inconvenience. I still need it. Because I'm still a human being. I'm still, still falling short of God's glory. I've been declared righteous through faith, but I still fall short of His glory. Do you? I still have lessons to learn. My friends, the lessons God is teaching you, if you are not in Christ, the lesson is this. Repent. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your slavery to yourself and submit to Him. If you are in Christ and you are somehow out of fellowship with Him and you're spinning your wheels and all these strange things are happening to you and you don't know why, I'll guarantee you, I will guarantee you He's working on you somehow. Tilling that soil around you. Maybe God looked out at your life and said, you know what, you could have been so much more. You could have been so much better. I gave you all these things and you're doing nothing. It's time to bring you home. Not to hell. Bring you home. Jesus, our advocate, may have said, Father, a little more time. I got a trial for him. 
I got something for Lance he needs before you bring him home. Let's bring him around a little bit further and we can get maybe 25 years more service out of him. Not for our sakes, God might say, but for his sake. More glory to you, Lord, through him. And doing it for you, I will guarantee it. Our trials. You're depressed. You don't know what to do. You're afraid. God's got those things for you there. Not to pop a pill. Not to spend all your time talking to counselors, but to actually sit alone and talk to God. It's called prayer. Just sit down. Turn the lights off. Sit down. Sit still. God is me and you. It's me and you. I am at the end of my rope. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to feel. I don't even know what to pray. That's an awesome place to be, my friends. I would dare say there is no better place to be because you're at the end of you. And that is when God is most powerful, when we are most weak. And when God is most weak in your life is when you think you are most powerful. I tell you, repent. Or what happened to them in eternity will happen to you unless you repent. Let me pray. Lord, as we close this time together in worship of your name through the teaching of your word, we sat still. We have sat still for almost an hour. We sang songs. We visited with each other. We shook hands. Perhaps we met new people. We gave of our time to be here today, Lord. We gave of our money and the offering plate. Lord, you owe us nothing. You've given us everything. But I pray on behalf of everyone here, will you? Will you give to us more from your mercy and grace? Will you show us more of your glory? We leave here having worshipped your holy name. May we be different for it. Ultimately, may you be glorified by it. And if there's anyone here who needs to repent of their unbelief, I pray they not get out of this building until they do. Those of us who have repented of unbelief already, of the sins and our pet sins that we hold on to, convict us all the more that we repent of those and draw nearer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may God bless you today as you repent, unbeliever or believer. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 